Good morning and welcome. Thanks for connecting in this morning. We are continuing on our journey through Philippians. Um, So it's our aim to get through this whole book. This is the third message in the series. Just diving in with Paul and digging in deep to what's going on in his head and in his heart in this letter that he writes to a church that is very, very close to his heart. Uh, So we've done an introduction and last week we got stuck into chapter 1 proper and looked at uh, this idea of fellowship in the gospel and looked at how Paul prays for his friends uh, to try and inform our prayers. And today we're in a difficult passage. We're going to look at chapter 1 verses 12 to 26. Uh, This is probably not a passage that you would choose to preach on. It's, It's only a passage that you're likely to hit uh, if, you, if you choose to, to go through the whole book. And I think that's a good reason for preaching through or teaching through entire books is to make sure that we cover everything, that we don't leave out the bits that we're, we're not that sure about or, or that don't sort of rock our boats that much. So this is uh, Philippians 1. I'm going to read some verses from, from verse 12. Uh, The plan is to get to verse 26 today, which is probably where the chapter break should be. The chapter break, uh, I think in Philippians 1, lands about four verses too late. But who am I to disagree with the archbishop who sorted all that out? This is verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain 
And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, there's a few little verses in there that that we like to quote and that are sort of big hitters as far as life verses go, favorite verses. And then there are some other verses that are just like, what is actually going on there? So let's let's track through and, and and as we go through, understand here that there's something a bit different compared to a lot of Paul's letters. In this letter and in this part of the letter, Paul gives us an unusual level of insight into his own mind, into his own circumstances. He usually doesn't write an awful lot about himself, but he gives us a lot of what he is thinking. And in particular, he he thinks out loud towards the sort of second half of the passage that we just read. Paul is, is, do you ever talk to yourself? Because what Paul is doing here, I think, is he's sort of talking to himself. He's thinking out loud and he's writing it down and sending it to his his beloved friends in Philippi. So this is is a, a fairly unique passage. There are four massive questions that I want to use just to sort of frame where we're going this morning. Massive questions. What started here is, as, I, as I read this a few days ago and, and, and started to, to ponder it, um, I thought, where, where are we going here? What are we going to do with this? And then the more I looked at it, it sort of distilled down into four huge questions. And I'll give you the four of them off the bat here, and then we'll, we'll go through each one. First question, what is your response to difficult circumstances? Second one, what is your response to opposition from Christians? Number three, what do you think about death? And number four, what is the meaning of life? Now that is some seriously heavy questions coming out of the passage. Uh, each one could probably be a message in its, you know, on its own, but that means we'd be in Philippians for a long time. So you can chew on these and and expand on these yourselves. First one, what is your response to difficult circumstances? When everything seems to be going wrong, what do you do? Do you reject those circumstances? Do you rebuke them? Do you start shouting at the devil and throwing stones at him and casting them out because things are going in a difficult direction? I've been reading this week in my own devotional reading the story of Joseph. And Joseph, whenever he reflected back on his life in Egypt, whenever he thought about you know, what his brothers had done to him, how he'd ended up you know, in, in Potiphar's house, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, wrongly put in prison, saw a way out and, and that a guy could help him and the guy forgot about him, and he just languishes in this prison cell. And then finally, he's, he's sort of number two in Egypt. He's the prime minister, just the king or the pharaoh above him. He's in control. Uh, and then his brothers come back and he forgives them. And at the end of it all, he famously says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You meant it for harm, God meant it for good. Joseph was able to look at his difficult life and see that God meant good throughout all those challenges. 
But Joseph had the benefit of hindsight. For Joseph, he was sitting in, in the, the wealth of, of his home now in Egypt, the, the power that he had been entrusted with by Pharaoh, the way God had elevated him to this position of influence in order to save his own people, his family now back around him again. And it's a bit easier then to look back and say God meant it for good. Paul is in prison. Right? Paul isn't at the end of the journey looking back. He is in prison and he does not know how things are going to pan out for him. But he does know the story of another more recent descendant of Israel. Joseph was a descendant of Israel, a son of Jacob. Paul knows the story of a more recent descendant of Israel who was falsely accused by his own people, like Joseph was accused by his brothers, like Paul now is in prison. Falsely accused by his own people who suffered the greatest punishment you could suffer. And as a result of that, God still demonstrated through the resurrection that he intended it all for good. Paul knows the story of Jesus. He knows that God can bring order out of chaos. We sometimes rebuke the chaos. We sometimes, when the difficult circumstances come, we start stamping our feet and declaring, no, in the name of Jesus, these things aren't going to happen. Paul doesn't do that. But Paul is not skipping around the prison cell, singing nursery rhymes and celebrating the fact that he's in jail. He's not doing that. He's not being glib. He's not celebrating difficult circumstances. There's a difference between foolishly celebrating something that is painful and difficult or even in that situation, choosing to rejoice. That's what Paul does. He doesn't want to be in prison. He does not want to be chained to a Roman praetorian guard. He does not want to be limited in terms of where he can travel and how he can influence the churches and help them. He doesn't want to be there. But while he's there, he chooses to rejoice because rejoicing is a choice. As we'll see in this letter as we go along, to rejoice is something you choose to do. Despite your circumstances, you choose to rejoice. And Paul chooses to rejoice in prison because he knows a God who can bring order out of chaos. He knows a God that can bring resurrection out of death. And he knows that even in these difficult circumstances, God is working. He also knows the Philippians are worried about him. His mates back in Philippi are going to be fretting because Paul is their leader. Paul planted the church. Paul established the church. They have sent him money several times, gifts uh, which other churches did not all do, where they have supported Paul. Even when he's been in other places, they have sent money to him. They have probably looked after him in prison because when you were in prison, prison in Rome, uh, you did not eat unless your friends sent you food. It was not particularly comfortable. And Paul knows that they will be worried about him because as far as they're concerned, our leader's in prison. Everything's going pear-shaped. What are we going to do? So one of the th reasons he writes this is to reassure them that he will be okay. The important thing to note, whenever you're facing trials, whenever everything seems to be going wrong, and, and, and you or I have got a picture in our minds and we think, well, I think if that happened and that happened and that happened, it would be great. 
God do those things. And then the opposite happens. And everything seems to fall apart. How do we respond to difficult circumstances? The important thing to note here is Paul's perspective. Paul's perspective. I want you to know, verse 12, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, you don't look at things from a human perspective. Look at them from a God perspective. Paul says, I know this looks bad, but just take a step back, get up to a higher elevation and look down. Look at it from God's perspective. The gospel is advancing. The gospel is advancing. Have you ever heard the one about the Trojan horse where a group of cracked, Greek soldiers were put inside a wooden horse. Not sure how much of the story is is true and how much has been fictionalized, but they were put inside a wooden horse, left outside the city of Troy. The rest of the Greek army appeared to retreat and sail away, and the inhabitants of Troy thought, well, we'll have this horse as a trophy because obviously we've just won this battle. They bring the horse into the city, At night, the Greek army sail back. The horse opens up. Out from inside of the horse come the soldiers. They open the gates and they take the city. Bringing, the enemy brings in the horse, brings in the Greek soldiers that then lead to his downfall. How will the gospel get from the villages of Galilee, the the larger towns of, of Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, how will it get to the bigger cities? And how will it get to the heart of the Roman Empire, which is at that time the absolute center of the world? Jesus, how are you going to get your gospel in there? How are you going to get the good news of the kingdom in there? How are you going to get the power of the Holy Spirit in there, into the heart of the Roman Empire? You're not going to be able to do that. Just stick with the little towns and villages, the simple folk who aren't that well educated, who aren't that wealthy. Just just work with them and, and leave the power centers of the world to just get on with it. What is God going to do to get the gospel to Rome? Pretty simple. Let them capture Paul. Let them bring into their city themselves the Trojan horse that is known as Paul the Apostle. Because inside Paul, there is a message of the good news of the kingdom of God that is explosive. Whenever Caesar was born, an inscription was written, the gospel, the actual word gospel was used, evangelion, the good news, the gospel of the birth of the son of the gods, Caesar. And Paul has within him this explosive counter-message now. The good news is that the kingdom of God has come. And also Paul has inside him the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. The guy is just a coiled spring. He's a powder keg ready to blow. And the Romans take him and bring him right into the very center of their city and plonk him there, chained to one of their elite guards. It is actually amazing. And we read in Psalms, in Psalm 2, a wonderful Psalm that is behind so much in the New Testament, particularly Jesus the King. 
Verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. (laughs) The Lord scoffs at them. I can imagine as Paul has been walked into that prison and the Philippians at a distance are thinking, this is it, we're doomed. And the Christians in Rome are probably trying to figure out what's actually going on here. God has a massive smile on his face because the power of the gospel is being carried into the heart of the Roman Empire by a bunch of Roman soldiers. And he's loving it. And as, as Paul sits down in that cell and the chain is locked onto his foot or his wrist, and the other end of the chain is locked onto one of these elite Roman soldiers, top guys, Praetorian Guard, starting his four-hour shift. As that chain lock snaps closed, the Holy Spirit smiles and says, you have no idea what you have just done. You have no idea. And if you'd pardon the horrendous pun, but it's just beautiful, Paul now has a captive audience. And he's not the captive. The praetorian guard chained to him is the captive audience who for four hours is going to hear the gospel. Can you imagine what the chat was like with the praetorian guards in their tea room? One of them comes off the shift, the first shift, and he goes into the tea room where the others are getting ready to go and do their shift. And he goes in and says, you will not believe the nut job that they brought in here today. He says there's another king, and it's not Caesar. He says there's another Lord, and it's not Caesar. He talks about this guy called Jesus. He claims to have met a guy that rose from the dead and put his spirit inside him and transformed him. What a nutter. What an absolute bin lid we have got in our cell today, guys. And, and then the question is, you know, maybe a few days later, and they've all done their turn and done four-hour shifts each, and, and one of them walks in and says, right, whose turn is it now to go and listen to this nut job for four hours? And I can imagine one of the guards saying, here, I'll go. I like listening to him. When I listen to him talk about Jesus, I, something happens inside of me. I'll go and do a shift. I'll go and chain myself to this man. And Paul, when he, when he closes the letter, he's so cheeky. Paul is a mischievous character. At the end of the letter, he writes to the Philippians from his prison cell, which is highly likely to be in Rome, although some have suggested Ephesus. But he writes from his prison cell, and in verse 22 he says, All of the saints send you greetings, especially those from Caesar's household. (laughs) In other words, you don't bring Paul too close. Paul is a liability. You bring him into the heart of Rome and the very people living in Caesar's household are starting to get born again. What is your perspective when things go wrong? (laughs) And not only that, not only are, 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 are these soldiers and people in Caesar's household hearing the gospel, but in verse 14, 
Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Because Paul is in prison, the Christians in Rome who previously maybe let Paul do everything are starting to realize here he's, he's in prison. We need to start going and proclaiming this message. And they're getting the courage and the boldness to go and fearlessly tell people about Jesus because Paul has been put in prison. Satan is a fool. You know, he's an absolute fool because these things that he tries to do to hold back the gospel, God just laughs and the gospel explodes and spreads further and goes to places that it previously could not have gone. What is your mindset? What is your perspective when things go wrong? Because in Philippians, one of the things that Paul will do is he will try to change your thinking. He will want you to have the mindset that Jesus has. To think from a Jesus perspective, even when everything is going pear-shaped. A changed way of viewing things. That does not mean, I reiterate, that does not mean that we celebrate. That when bad news comes, we have to put on some stupid smile and celebrate it. No, we choose to rejoice in the God who can bring order out of chaos. We choose to think like God thinks. Jesus rebuked Peter in Matthew 16 whenever Peter said to Jesus, you're not going to die, you're not, you're not going to a cross, you're not going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Peter rebuked him and said, Peter, you're thinking like a man instead of thinking the things of God. You need to have a different perspective. So that was the first question. The second question, a very difficult one, what is your response to opposition from Christians? This is a weird little passage. I have wrestled with this and read about it and listened to people teaching on it. It is a tricky passage. Verse 15, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Some people are going out and envy and rivalry. Now, those are two words that whenever Paul gives a sin list, like he does in Galatians 5, before the fruit of the Spirit. He gives a sin list, the nasty stuff, the fruit of not living in the Spirit. Envy and rivalry are in that list. Okay, this is nasty stuff. Some people, out of envy and rivalry, are preaching Christ. That's their motivation. You did hear that right. And he goes on to say in verse 17, that they are preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. We'll maybe learn more about that next week. Out of selfish ambition, their own motives, their own promoting themselves, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. Now listen to this. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Like, come on, is that not weird? People are preaching about Jesus Their motivation is not that the gospel would spread. It's not that people would come to follow Jesus. They're doing it from a selfish heart, and they're actually doing it to try to hurt Paul. I can't get my head around it. Are these Christians or not? I don't know. They're loosely linked to the church. They are preaching Christ, but their motive is all wrong. It is motivated really by two things, selfishness and promotion of themselves and the desire to hurt Paul. That is just one of the weirdest things in my Bible. Preaching Jesus in order to hurt Paul. But God can use it. 
God can use it. Who are these people? What is their aim? I think, and again, this, this just came up in my own reading this week, but I was in the, the last few chapters of Romans. These might be the Jewish Christians in Rome that Paul is tackling in Romans 14 about customs of holy days and what sort of food you can eat and not eat and what you can drink and not drink. And he, he, he's telling them in Romans 14, these things don't matter. You do what you want to do. Let other people do what they want to do. Don't make it a cause for division. It's a bit like what we talked about last week, discerning what is best. It doesn't matter, Paul says. Your customs don't matter. Feel free to celebrate your customs. Feel free to go on and live in that way. If it's important to your cultural identity, don't force it on other people. And that's what Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, where there is a problem with the Jews and the Gentiles actually, or with the Jews accepting the Gentile believers. That's a lot of what's at the heart of the, the letter to the Romans. The Jews were not accepting the Gentile Christians. And it could be that some of those Jewish Christians who received the letter to Romans and read chapter 14 didn't like it. They did not like what Paul was saying. They did not agree with him. Their customs were important and they were trying to force them on the Gentile Christians. And once Paul ended up in prison, they decided, we're going to go out, we're going to preach Jesus, and we're going to tell people that these things are important. We're going to take a shot at Paul when he is down. And their motive is to hurt him, to damage him. They have a grudge against him. Are they Christians? Are they not? It's hard to imagine that they are genuine followers of Jesus if this is the way they act. What is your response to opposition from people in the church? It's incredible to think that anyone, and I've said this about three times in the last two minutes, but it's incredible to think that somebody would go out and preach Christ with the motivation that they want to hurt Paul. And if anything's more incredible than that, it's Paul's response in verse 18. It's just unbelievable. He says, what does it matter? He says, some are preaching out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me. What does it matter? So what? So what, he says. What matters is the important thing, discern what is best. The important thing is that in every way, even if the motive is false, Christ is preached. That is an amazing response. Paul is, an, is just an outrageous, gospel-centered, Christ-centered man. You're telling me that people are, are preaching about Jesus in order to annoy me? in order to win one over on me, in order to prove a point, in order to kick me when I'm down, will you just keep on going, baby? Because all that matters is that people are hearing about Jesus. You will answer to God for your motives and your heart behind it. I will celebrate, verse 18, I will rejoice that people are hearing about Jesus. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. You're trying to hurt me, you're not. <laughs> I celebrate that Jesus is being proclaimed. Do we have that sort of mindset? That's huge. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? When people in the church, loosely connected to the church, the, you know, the church, not just one fellowship, but when people loosely connected 
to the church oppose and try to hurt us, even in their ministry. They try to hurt someone else. What is our response to that? Paul's response is absolutely mind-boggling. So what? I am so focused on the gospel, so focused on Jesus, that even if you're trying to hurt me, I will celebrate that you are telling people about Jesus. That's class. So that was the second question. What is your response to opposition from Christians? And Christians maybe is in quote marks because we're just not quite sure. And verse 18 then, there's a hinge in the passage. In verse 18, it splits. He says in the first part of the verse, I rejoice. And then he goes on to say in the second part of the verse, and I will rejoice. Rejoicing is just at the heart of Philippians. He rejoices because he has the right perspective about being in prison. He has the right perspective about these who are trying to oppose him and hurt him, and he rejoices. And now he shifts his thinking towards what the future might hold, and he says, I'm going to continue to rejoice. It's a decision. And remember, he's in prison. If you're in prison, you're not there to do time for a crime. You're there while the governors decide whether or not they're going to kill you. That's, you know, they just put you there for a short period of time while they make that decision. Paul is in prison, not knowing what the future might hold. He's going to ponder it. But before he ponders it, he says, do you know what? I'm going to rejoice. I can tell you that. That will be part of my future. I will rejoice. I will rejoice. I make that decision. I miss singing that song, church. Raise a hallelujah. That, that decision and declaration, I will rejoice. No matter what's going on, I am going to praise God. I'm going to sing. He says a little bit in verse 19 about through their prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Christ, what has happened will turn out for his deliverance. I'm going to speed up here, but these are things that you can ponder yourself. Notice the connection between prayer, the prayers of the Philippians for him, and the help of the Holy Spirit, or literally it says the supply of the Holy Spirit. Is this a glimpse into the mystery of prayer? If you tell me you understand prayer, that's great. I don't. I, I, I believe in prayer, but do I understand it fully? I don't. <laughs> I do it. I believe in it passionately, but I don't fully understand. There's a mystery to it that is, is beyond me. But Paul, do we get a wee glimpse here into the fact that when people pray for one another, the Spirit is released to supply what is needed. That there's a connection between the two. That that supply is there, ready and waiting, and it is the prayers of the saints for one another that unlocks that supply of the Spirit. And Paul knows he needs a supply of the Spirit. He goes on to talk about the fact that he's going to need courage. Whatever he's going to face, he needs courage. He needs that supply of the Spirit. How will it come? Church, it'll come through your prayers. That's how it'll come. And he, he, he mentions at the end of verse 19, and again, this is a, a sort of a curiosity that you can run after yourselves. He says, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I've never noticed this before, but this is a quote from Job. Keep your finger in, in Philippians 1 and bounce back. Before the Psalms to Job 13. 
and listen to this in Job. Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me. Now this is, whenever, whenever somebody in the New Testament quotes something from the Old Testament, they're not, they don't just want you to look at that one verse. They are bringing to mind the whole story. Um, I was watching, what were we watching? Which one was it? It was Avengers Assemble the other day. And there's a moment towards the end of it where Iron Man says to Jarvis or Tony Stark says to Jarvis, do you remember the story of Jonah? The whole thing, okay? Whenever somebody refers back in the, to the Old Testament, they want you to pick up the whole story and think about the whole thing, not just one particular aspect of it. And, and when Paul quotes from Job, he wants you to look at the context of the quote. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Now Paul's in prison, and you better believe that's a real verse. That's a life verse for Paul. Even if I die... I will trust in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. Those are the exact words that Paul quotes in 119. This will turn out for my deliverance. And Job goes on in verse 18 to say, I know I will be vindicated. Vindicated. And Paul says in verse 19 that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, scholars suggest that that has not been well translated. Whenever you read that, it sounds like Paul's saying, I know I'm going to get out of prison. Whereas it maybe would be better translated that this will turn out for vindication. And it's not Paul's vindication. It's the vindication of the gospel. Whatever, I think Paul is saying here, no matter what happens to me physically, the gospel is going to get vindicated. It's not just me that's in prison here. The gospel's in prison. And even if my physical body doesn't make it out, the gospel will be vindicated. And he says, regardless of what happens in verse 20, he wants Christ to be exalted, whether by his life or by his death. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at looking at what I think is the better outcome in a situation and praying and telling God to do it. Um, whereas Paul says, no, whatever happens, glorify Jesus in me. That's, that's, that's the way he prays. That's the way he ponders this. Whatever the outcome is, God be glorified. Not give me the outcome that I want. I think you would be glorified, God, if I got out of prison and lived a long and healthy life. So therefore you should do that. No. He says, whatever happens, May Christ be magnified in me. It's a bit like Daniel's mates in, in Daniel chapter 3, where they're on the, on the edge of this fiery furnace, and they say to the king, if we're thrown into that furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and from you. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've, sent, you've set up. It's a similar picture in Rome. Worship of the emperor was becoming a big thing. And Paul maybe had this in mind as well. I know God can deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I'm not bowing the knee. <laughs> I'm not declaring that Caesar is Lord. I have two more questions that I want to throw at you before we stop and jump over to Zoom. I watched several times before Christmas on Apple TV and uh, other streaming platforms are available. This is not product placement, but I watched on Apple TV several times a documentary about Bruce Springsteen's new album that came out uh, in the autumn time, I think before he was caught 
riding his motorbike after drinking tequila. Silly boy. But in the, in the documentary about the album, he talks a lot, as a man now 71 years old, he talks a lot about getting old, about age, about the fact that some of his lifelong bandmates have passed away, one to cancer, one to a stroke. Uh, the first band that he was in, all of the guys that were in that band are dead. He's the only one still alive. And he talks a lot about, about death, about age, and he asks the question at one point, where do we go when we die? Where do we go when we die? Do you have a biblical understanding of death? And this is something we can maybe dive into deeper sometime. But this, just to, to raise the question from this passage, do you have a biblical understanding of death? Paul writes, I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Where do we go when we die? Is that the right question? I don't think it is. Paul knows he has no real choice or no real say in the final outcome of his imprisonment. But he says, if I did have a choice, I would choose death. Are we there yet? Are we there yet in our thinking? Not because he's depressed, not because he's had enough of the beatings and the imprisonments and the shipwrecks and the betrayal and the opposition from those who should be supporting him, but because if he was to die, he would then be with Christ. That's a big statement. What is your view on death? And could you agree with what Paul says, that it would be better to die? His desire, not that it would be better for everyone, but his own personal desire for him would that it would be better to die and to be with Christ. But he's torn because there are people who need him. And isn't that the dilemma that everyone faces as they would face death? Everyone who is in Christ would face death. And if they had time to ponder it, they would probably say, I desire I want to be with him, but there are people here who need me. That awful dilemma. And Paul knows that the Philippians need him and other young churches need him. But the question regarding death that I want to raise is, the question is not, where do we go when we die? The question is, who are we with when we die? What do we know about death? Not an awful lot, but we know this. If this book is true, if it's not true, I don't know why you're listening, but if this book is true, at the moment of death, Paul is telling us a Christian will be with Christ. Exactly where, doesn't matter. For exactly how long, doesn't matter. At the moment of death, we will be with him. Jesus said to the, the insurrectionist on the cross beside him, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And the Jews had an idea of paradise as, as being, a, I guess, like a, a place where they waited for the final resurrection. It wasn't the end. But the key was with him, with Jesus. Doesn't the Bible say we go to heaven when we die? Well, here's a wee bomb. Does it? Find the verse and send it to me. 
does it. What it says is we will be with Christ. That is heaven. (laughs) That is paradise. That is everything. We will be with Christ. And the story ends with a resurrection in the future. The story ends with new heavens and new earth. The story ends with creation restored in the, the final chapters of Revelation. The story ends with the city of God coming down from heaven to earth, not the other way around. Read your Bible. Get a biblical understanding of death. This is not for today's message, but I think so many of us, we've never really pondered it. Everything around us is, is geared towards staying alive and enjoying life, and life is good, and I think I have problems myself with death because I love life. I love family. I love friends. I love life. I love coffee. I love creation. I love Jack Russell's. And some of us, our, our, our view of heaven, we've made up this idea of heaven where we say, well, in heaven, I'm going to have a mansion in glory, and I'm going to have a car like Tony Stark's car, and I'm going to have 50 Jack Russells. Everything that I like is just going to be there, and it's going to be bigger and better and more of it. And all we're doing is portraying the fact or betraying the fact that our hearts are still full of selfishness and greed. Stop going on about heaven and start going on about Jesus. I will be with him. I don't need to know the details. And at some stage after that, there will be a resurrection. And I think it'll look a lot more like earth than some of us have actually thought in the past. I don't want to float about in clouds singing songs. Do you really think as you walk through a forest, as you listen to the birds sing, as you walk along the beach and listen to the roar of the water, do you really think it all just gets crumpled up and thrown in the bin and we float around and sing? Nah, God said it's all good. It's all good. Read Revelation. See how the story ends. And often when we pray for those who are facing death, we, we, our prayers show our theology is not fully formed. We haven't thought about it. Death is the worst thing that can possibly happen to that person. To the point that if you pray that God would be with them and help them in this moment, it's almost like you're showing a lack of faith. We need to get a biblical Paul perspective to die, to be with Jesus. That's better. What is your view on death? Final question, and with this I close. Over time, as always. Verse 21. What's the meaning of life? (laughs) Yes, let's cover that in 30 seconds. What's the meaning of life? I suppose we all would answer that differently. There's not a a single answer out there that, that can sum it up for every human being on earth. But what is the meaning of life? Paul says, for me, verse 21, to live is Christ. As he weighs up his options, he says, to die is gain. And he's playing with words there in Greek. When you read it in Greek, what he says is, to live, Christos. To die, Kurdos. Two words that sound very familiar. Christos, Kurdos. To live, Christos. To live, I go on serving Jesus. Jesus is the center of my life. If I stay alive, I'm staying alive to serve him, to love him, to know him, to walk with him. If I die, Kurdos, I gain, I profit because I will be with him. If I live, I win. If I die, I win. Are we there yet? Could I say that? 
If someone studied my every move for a month, if some app on my phone was able to track everything I did, everywhere I went, everything I bought, every emotion I showed, every reaction, every conversation, every motive and intent of my heart, if it all could be logged for a month and then some software could come back and fill in the blank for Spence to live is what would go in? What would be the one word that would go in to fill in the blank if somebody watched me for a month? See, I'd like to think, I'd like to think, I'd like to say for me to live is, is Christ. But if you watched closely, is that the conclusion you'd come to? And I think in the, in the church, and with this I do close, I think in the church, and I've, I've moaned about this for a while, I think sometimes we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the life of Jesus described there. We look at that as a way in. And once we get in, we leave that behind. That's why I've been pushing for years for people to read from the Gospels every single day in life and creating my own reading plans to make sure that happens. Because I think we develop this attitude that the Gospels are sort of the, the primary school, the, the sort of the, the entry, the, the, or even the nursery, I don't know, but, but they're, they're just the, the starting point or part of the journey. But then you move on to either secondary school or university or whatever, and you move on to Paul. And anyone who teaches in a nursery school would be very offended if, if people had the attitude that what goes on there gets left behind. It doesn't. It is formative for the whole of life's journey. And anyone who works in a nursery school, listen to me, they would say the same thing. In that year, there are formations going on in children's lives and hearts and brains that are going to affect the rest of their lives. You don't just leave these things behind, but I think a lot of Christians, they come through the Gospels and they leave them behind and they feel like they have moved on to Paul. And they feel like they now live in Paul and they love Paul's weighty theology. And frankly, you have completely misunderstood Paul because Paul is obsessed with Jesus. And Paul is utterly consumed with Christ and the Gospel. And he would say, don't you be so foolish as to leave the Gospels behind and think that a mature Christian just lives in my letters and reads my words because I'll always point you back to him. I will always obsess over him. For me to live is Christ. The Christ-centeredness of this man is breathtaking. I love it. I love it. So this obscure passage that has Paul chained to a Roman guard telling us that there are people preaching Jesus in order to try to hurt him, pondering the future, will he live or will he die? From start to finish, read it again. It is utterly, utterly, just outrageously, I'm lost for words here, focused on Jesus. That's the way we should live. Bless you. I'll see you soon on Zoom. Thanks for listening. I hope you've been encouraged. Bye.